sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, the number one religious liberty issue in America continues to be, surprise to many, too many Americans lose their jobs every business day for no other reason than their faithfulness to practicing their faith in God. A workplace religious freedom continues to be really the number one religious freedom problem in America today. The Supreme Court has had opportunities to address this recently, and we're going to talk about that with our guest today, Attorney Todd Farland, Associate General Counsel at the General Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Todd, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Alan, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. So why is it that the Supreme Court even needs to step in and address the issue of workplace religious freedom? Well, Alan, the short answer to that is to fix their own mistake. When Congress passed uh, Title VII, uh, the Civil Rights Act that protects employees in the workplace, it said, well, it was amended to say, that discriminate against employees, and you had to accommodate them based on their religion unless it caused, quote, an undue hardship. And that's what the law that Congress said that it passed. Unfortunately, in the late 1970s, in a case called TWA versus Hardison, the Supreme Court interpreted undue hardship as anything more than de minimis or slight or minimal. And that has been the law of the land since the 1970s. And that was the Supreme Court just simply deciding that. It wasn't what Congress uh, uh, said, nor was it do we believe what Congress intended. So it would be a good opportunity for the Supreme Court to fix its mistake from the 70s and make the standard more in line with what Congress intended when it passed the law. Well, and they've had a number of cases recently. Uh, the last two terms, they've had opportunities to take cases to address this, but they have so far declined. Isn't that right? Yes, that's true. There's been at least three opportunities directly before the court asking them to overturn Hardison. The first case was called uh, Patterson versus Walgreens. That one was filed back in 2019, and the Supreme Court turned it down in February of 20, just shortly before COVID hit. Uh, not that it's related at all. Uh, and then there was another set of cases, two cases that went up, were filed this last summer, summer of 20, one called Dalvaristi versus GLE, and another one called Small versus Memphis Light and Power. And those cases, while they had different attorneys, uh, got sort of lumped together, and the court denied both of them on the same day, I guess, earlier this week. Well, help our listeners understand, you know, the problems with the current interpretation. You know, tell the story of, of either one of these cases or another case that, that really illustrates why this de minimis test is, is so damaging. Sure. And, and a perfect example of this is, you know, we had a case a couple of years ago where an employee for a company at first wanted uh, were to study abroad program. And there was an emergency phone that needed to be carried uh, if people needed to call it. And, you know, in case there was an emergency, you know, with a student or something overseas, um, she was not comfortable carrying that phone during the Sabbath. Now, the phone didn't ring a lot, 
And also, if there was an actual emergency, she was willing to respond to that if it dealt with her territory or something that she had to handle. But she felt that carrying the phone was sort of like, I think in her words, sort of planning on breaking the Sabbath. And she just was uncomfortable with that. And, you know, she lost. Uh, the jury said and the court said that that was an undue hardship, just this merely carrying a cell phone. You know, we all have cell phones. Is that really is that really an undue hardship? But some of her fellow employees said, well, you know, uh, we got to carry We got to keep it with us. And it just it, it makes us feel like we're tied to the job and everything. And we're just really uncomfortable with it. So I think that's a perfect example of a case where, you know, it was at least the jury argued. I don't necessarily agree with him that it was more than a minimal hardship, but um, certainly wouldn't have been an undue hardship in a high under a higher standard. So the problem was other employees would have had to be kind of on call during the Sabbath hours and carry the phone. Right. And, and it's not on call in your traditional sense of, you know, it was on call in the sense of carrying that cell phone. And if it rang, now I want to mind you, that cell phone rang a half a dozen times at most during a school year. And in fact, we had not found, I think in a couple of year period in discovery, any instances of the phone ever ringing on Saturday. And in fact, the one emergency that did happen on Sabbath, which happened after she left, there was an earthquake down in Peru several years ago, uh, and that happened on the Sabbath. But again, that situation handled not through the cell phone ringing. That was just they knew they had students there. And of course, it was international news that there was an accident. And she said, yes, that was sort of a situation which I would have came in. So it really was just a non-issue. The phone never rang. And when there was an emergency, she was willing to come in. And when there was an emergency on the Sabbath, they didn't even come in through the phone. Well, you mentioned there are some jurisdictions under state law that have a more robust standard. California, where I am, being one of them, New York and New Jersey also. And and in other civil rights laws that also use undue hardship, um, we saw a dissent from Justice Gorsuch to the denial of, you know, the courts denying these cases this term. And he pointed out three other civil rights laws that use a similar undue hardship type of approach, but have different standards, right? Yes. I mean, you know, the most famous, of course, on this is the, is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the ADA uh, uses the same language, undue hardship, but they learned from religion and the Hardison decision and specifically or made it more specific and more definitive in their statute that um, that they, you know, undue hardship more than that, more than minimal. And, and the courts have followed that. In fact, in the ADA context, the fight is typically not over undue hardship. Uh, it has always been in other areas. Um, and so, yes, we know what Congress, you know, has met when it's used this phrase. And, you know, the decision that was made in Hardison, well, first of all, it would never really be made that way again. I mean, the court analyzes and interprets statutes in an entirely different way now than in the 1970s. It also is important to note that even though the courts of appeals have latched onto this phrase of undue hardship, and the language certainly is in the opinion, that it really wasn't the thrust of what that case was litigated and how it was briefed. There was a union in that case, and the issue, at least as argued and briefed, was really about whether or not you could be required to violate a collective bargaining agreement or whether a CBA uh, union agreement could override a request for religious accommodation. And the court decided that and said the answer was no, but it also sort of went on to say, well, anything more than this de minimis cost, and that language then has been picked up by the courts of appeals 
and just really ran with. And the court really has not had an opportunity since then, or has not taken the opportunity, I should say, to really address what they meant in that decision. So in the jurisdictions that have the more robust standard of significant difficulty or expense, have, have employees fared better with their claims? I think they fared a lot better. I mean, we have not seen in some of these jurisdictions the same sort of level of complaints. And I think that's the important thing is that this isn't about increasing an employee's chances of bringing a lawsuit or bringing a lawsuit. I mean, the reality is to bring one of these, you almost always have to have been terminated or not hired. And what this really is trying to do is set clear guidelines so the employers, employees know where they are and, you know, employees aren't getting fired. And I think we have seen that in these jurisdictions with these higher standards. Well, and I think if the Supreme Court would finally weigh in, uh, it's going to send a very clear message to employers and especially to the human resources, to the HR departments, you know, basically accommodate. And in my experience, as you know, I, I uh, litigate these cases. Um, in my experience, if an employer wants to accommodate, they almost always can. It really is uh, a question of willingness. No, as we said in one of our cases that we uh, filed against UPS a number of years ago, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, and that's, you know, I think the Supreme Court revisiting this changed the mindset from HR departments from how do we say no to this? You know, how do we marshal the evidence and say no to, oh, how do we actually solve this problem? And, you know, and, and in all fairness, a lot of employers out there are doing the right thing. I mean, now in the cases that we see are where they are, but there's a lot of Adventist Jews, others out there who are getting accommodated on a regular basis. And so it, people shouldn't think of this as something that, you know, would cause a flood of litigation. The reality is most employers never even get a request like this. You and I have deposed how many human resources officials over the years? At least my experience has been the most majority of the time, this was one of the first, if not the first time they've ever dealt with a request for religious accommodation. Well, and, you know, to piggyback on what you were saying, I've done a couple of panels with the American Bar Association over the years with attorneys from some large corporations that have very well thought through practices, not just, you know, everybody's got policies. Oh, we don't discriminate, right? Um, the lawyers write the policies and make sure that the company's policies are all, um, you know, what they should be. But in practice, there are some that really do then implement, for example, break rooms where people can go if you're Muslim and pray or if you're Christian and you want to have a lunchtime Bible study or something like that. So there are companies that really get being inclusive of the religious needs of their workers, but um, especially some of the larger companies. Right. And, you know, Brian Grimm and his organization, the Religious Roundtable. Yeah, no, his, his, uh, his organization works on religion in the workplace. has done a lot of studies on this. And, you know, it is large, white-collar companies generally do a good job. So if you're working at a Google or a Texas Instruments or a Salesforce or some of those, you know, for the most part, they value their employees, understand that, you know, allowing people to bring their whole selves into the workplace and everything, you know, is a positive contribution. You know, it tends to be, you know, either heavily unionized environments where people are just sort of treated based on their seniority and, you know, sort of fungible or sort of lower skilled jobs um, where employers really view their employees as fungible assets. And if this particular one can't do it the way they want, then they'll just replace them with someone else. 
And that tends to be the kind of cases that at least I see. Well, yeah, um, I would say almost exclusively, rarely do I see salaried employees with religious discrimination claims. They're almost invariably hourly wage workers. Um, and if I had to point my finger at the worst offender, it would be the United States Postal Service. <laughs> yes, uh, in the post office, you know, it has the combination of both being a government bureaucracy and a heavily unionized one. And those combinations together, and one that does not have historically a good relationship with its workforce, it is one that, you know, the, the post office and the uh, post office employees and management have, have historically not gotten along. My, my favorite story about the post office and employees not getting along was uh, a colleague of mine, uh, we've done a lot of cases with, represented a lot of postal employees, and he had a postal employee once hired him to go after the post office because he had been assigned a parking space in the parking lot directly under a tree. And every day when he came out, of course, the car was dirty. And this had been done by his boss because he didn't like him. And so I thought it was hilarious that both the bosses assigned the parking space to get at him and the employee hired a lawyer to go back after the post office. Because of the bird droppings on the windshield. Yeah, and that was the level of animosity at the post office. Well, you know, I had to confess to one of my postal worker clients that I was ready to go postal. I was so upset about the way he was being treated. Well, on that note, our guest today, Todd McFarland, we've been talking about the number one problem of workplace religious freedom and people losing their jobs because of their faith. And dare I put out to our listeners that if you or anyone that you know is having a workplace conflict, please do let us know. Um, we stand ready to help. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.